That was quite a snowstorm this week. Holy smokes. Monday's my day off, which is when you have three kids, it's kind of like just a crazy day anyway. And then Tuesday, we were stuck at home. And then Wednesday, I was, I was snow blowing and trying to get out of there from like 7.30 in the morning. And then it was just so, so, so much snow, I had to like shovel it. And I ended up getting into the office around noon on, <laughs> on, uh, on Wednesday. So that was a short week. Because believe me, getting stuff done at home is impossible. Uh, so I thought, geez, what, wonder what word God has for the, for the church this week. And so I said to Jackie, I said, hey, what do you want me to preach about this week? And she goes, uh, and I was kind of just saying, it could be anything. She goes, well, the next sermon in your Acts series? And I was like, come on, really? That's what you got for me? And I said, you know, I, I, can, I can do whatever I want, Jackie. I can preach anything I want to. She goes, well, you should just preach the next sermon in your Acts series. I'm like, geez, okay. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I kind of had this adventurous kind of feel about it. And there was definitely wisdom in what she was saying. And uh, I thought, you know, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pursue this. I, I texted a friend that same day and, and said, you know, uh, I'm thinking about making a, taking all the time I use for sermon preparation and making a controversial topics wheel and spinning it. <laughs> you know, it's like the snow day wheel. You spin it. And then whatever topic it falls on, you just have to kind of drop... Drop your thoughts on that topic, or just any volunteers, what should we talk about today in the church? This morning, just kind of uh, after having prepared, um, I, I saw Bonnie and Aaron coming in for a small group, and I said, hey, Bonnie, what should I preach on today? I can preach on anything. You know, Olivia tells me I'm the boss of the church, my daughter, my five-year-old. She goes, you're the boss. Uh, <laughs> she, said to me, uh, she said to me a couple weeks ago, uh, she said, how, how, how are you doing? I said, how are you doing? And then she asked me how I was doing. So that's a, that's a win for a five-year-old to ask you how you're doing. <laughs> so um, the Five Stones book has been really helping us in our small groups to connect with our families in that way. And, uh, and I said, well, you know, I could really use a day off, I think. She goes, take a day off. You're the boss of the church. <laughs> I was like, seriously, kid? Like, Jesus, I mean, Jesus is in charge of the church, Olivia. She's like, well, you know, she, she has this funny idea. But... No sermon wheel this morning, because uh, Bonnie told me, you should just preach the next sermon in your Acts series. <laughs> so God, God had something to say, and I'll tell you, when I started looking into the Word, I really did hear something from God, like, a, like a, a big idea. And I'm really looking forward to sharing that with you today. And we're in Acts 9, and that Brad did a great job uh, last week uh, talking to us about Saul's conversion. When Saul became Paul. Saul, who in Acts 9-1, when Brad spoke last week, Saul was breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. So that's a pretty, pretty serious business. He was Mr. Dirty Work. He, was, he wanted to snuff out this Christian movement right from the beginning. And he went to the high priest and said, can I have uh, permission from you to drag people out of their houses and, and exterminate them? You know, he was a zealot. And... Uh, very frightening, like an extremist, more or less. And God, and God, met Saul when he was walking on the road and blinded him. And, and, and Saul said, who, who are you, Lord? And he goes, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And, uh, and he, he sent Paul away, uh, Saul, and he, and, and, uh, and he was blind for several days. After a few days, uh, God sent a man named Ananias, and Ananias prayed for Saul, and his sight was restored. And so, uh, so, so Paul, 
who was previously Saul, got this whole new vision for life from this experience. And all of his extreme amounts of Bible knowledge, being a very devout Jew and a very scholarly person, very intelligent, and all of his zeal for persecution got flipped and it became using my knowledge for spreading the very gospel I was trying to exterminate, right? And it got flipped and that zeal became sharing the faith with other people and not worrying about if I myself get persecuted or killed in the same way I was trying to persecute and kill other people. And in fact, in our passage today, I always mark my Bible with a little highlighter to let me know when to flip the slides on the PowerPoint. The last sentences on each of the slides as we're going through is, and people tried to kill him. So his first week of being, a, being an evangelist preacher was kind of rough. But he knew what to expect because he thought, you know, they're doing what I used to do, tried, trying to kill Christians. <laughs> and uh, he had this whole, this whole new vision. So we're going to read uh, in Acts 9.20 through 31. And then I'm going to share kind of the big idea that God gave to me. Talk a little bit about that. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on the name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. And it doesn't tell us how he proved that Jesus was the Messiah. But I can only only, uh, say it it was two things. One, he was able to explain it from the Jewish Bible, from his previous perspective, that the prophecies about Jesus and explain in a way that was almost unrefutable. It was very logical, very thoughtful. But two, signs and wonders, Un- undoubtedly. Undoubtedly, there were, there were miracles following him. And so the people saw that what he did, and they said, this is the real deal because people are being healed, people are being uh, delivered, set free. So certainly, I think that was what was going on. Verse 23, after many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night, they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. He must have been a pretty impressive guy because he already had followers at this point. I mean, he, he really was, uh, was killing it here. When he came to Jerusalem... He tried to join the disciples, that they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord, and that the Lord had spoken to him, and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they tried to kill him. Yes. When the believers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened. Living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. 
The thing that God really uh, shared with me from this passage that he wanted me to punctuate, I, I feel, for you, is in verse 26. And it came to me as I was reading a literal translation from the, from the Greek. So I was reading like the equivalent translation, and that's a very awkward translation. It's cumbersome, so they kind of smooth it out in the translations that we read. But the actual uh, wording is, in verse 26, when he came to Jerusalem, he tried to attach himself to the disciples. But they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. And what really struck me about this is, is uh, you know, God had his reasons for choosing Paul. And they were good reasons. But the church, understandably, was skeptical because of what Paul had been doing previously. When someone like a Saul or a Paul becomes united to Christ, even in churches like our church, uh, it's a very sad thought to the heart of God. When someone comes to Jesus in simple faith and tries to attach themselves to the church and is unsuccessful. It's a very uh, tragic thing because God has his reasons and God doesn't make mistakes. And I think that as understandable as it is in this narrative, I'm talking beyond this in a, in a more prophetic way to the church. When someone comes to faith in Jesus Christ, we need to make sure that they know that they are attached to us, that they are a full-fledged brother or sister in Jesus. It's very, very important, and it's our responsibility. And that's something that can be challenging because, believe it or not, when people come to Christ, they don't have it all together all the time. Can you believe that? I know all of you have it all together. I know that all of you have the mind of God, and you, all of you have no moral problems. All of you don't struggle with temptation. All of you, you know, don't rely on holding on to Jesus for dear life because you know that that's the only way you're going to make it through. When someone comes into a fellowship and tries to attach themselves to that church and they're unsuccessful, it breaks the heart of God. In your family, uh, maybe you have in-laws, brothers-in-laws, sister-in-laws, mother-in-laws, father-in-laws, but let's talk about brother or sister-in-laws. Your sister gets married to a guy, and that's her choice. It's the guy that she chose. You didn't have anything to do with it unless you were like the matchmaker. But your sister married this guy. And like it or not, he is your family. He is your flesh and blood family. And people go one of two ways with their in-laws. They either accept them fully as family members and, and and allow them to integrate into the life of the family. Or they have a sour attitude, and they proudly hold on to the way things were, and resent the fact that this person who doesn't belong has now ambushed the family. And depending on your family, maybe you have bad experiences with in-laws. I'm thankful to say I have some amazing in-laws in my life. But, uh, But it goes one of two ways. Have you seen this? Have you seen this? Big families? goes one of two ways. You either accept the person that your sister chose or your brother chose, or you are a stinker. And those are kind of the two options. Uh, when I, 
when someone comes into, into, into faith in a church community, you know, all that you have to do to be a Christian is believe that God sent Jesus and that Jesus covers your sins by his blood. You're saved by grace. And then you're part of the family, flesh and blood. You don't have to vote Republican, vote Democrat. Yeah, here we go. <laughs> you, don't have to, you don't have to jump through crazy hoops. Humans develop crazy hoops to jump through for other people. And we subtly think that we are the standard by which other people should be judged. But both, uh, both culturally, linguistically, language barriers, um, hygienically, think of all the ways, the different types of people there are in the world and how people think about things, the, the great diversity in the world. And God is putting together a church by his wisdom because he, uh, he has the right idea. He has his reasons. He's putting together this diverse family and it's incumbent upon us to accept the people that identify with Jesus as a flesh and blood relative in Christ and to give them the whole support of the family and let them know that we are a family. When, when my sister got married to my, to my brother-in-law, Ben, who I, who I just have to say I love him dearly. Um, I love him dearly. But, but when, when they got married... I really felt God uh, kind of telling me, reminding me, when you talk, listen. Listen to what he has to say. Affirm him. Basically, don't be selfish and try to get all your words in. Love and affirm. Listen. Talk. Uh, um, share, share positive things with him. And through, through that, I always had that in mind. You know, over the years, you know, our, my love for him has grown so much uh, because I felt like God reminded me to, to love him well and, and take him into the family. And, uh, and uh, that's, that's a picture of the church. You know, when, when God brings someone through our doors, and this church will just be really personal, and they, they put their faith in Jesus Christ, they might be so wildly different from you. They might not have the same ideas about morality as you yet. And yours might not be quite right either. Because, <laughs> by the way, that's God's standard that we're measured by, not by the very best of what we think is best. But, but uh, there's a certain... When God brings people into the family, um, it could be anybody. And God has his reasons. And our job as the church is to let people know that they are loved let people know that they're part of the family. Let people know uh, that we are here to listen, that we're here to love, and we're here to walk with them. And just like our family traditions change as we take on in-laws into our house, we have to allow these new people who just have simple saving faith in Jesus to come into our living rooms and change our family dynamic. We have to let them change us even as they allow us to change them. Because, you know, we're all becoming... Uh, conform to the image of Jesus, but we're all disciples. Uh, and God, it's, it, we, we often think about, you know, we need to disciple, as a church, we need to disciple other people, and that is very true. But make no mistake about it, God is discipling us. And the classroom is life. And the people that we reach for Jesus that put their faith in him are going to teach us even as we teach them. 
It's going to broaden the whole thing out. But we need to let people into our sacred spaces. When I was growing up, the big thing for my family was Christmas. And Jackie can attest to this. She loves Christmas with my family. My mom would uh, put out this huge spread. Five of us kids. Again, none of us were married. But I'm one of five. We have a big celebration. And and it's, it's this thing that is just so near and dear to our hearts. Well, now there are ten of us because all of my siblings are either married or engaged. And there's all of these mysterious little people running around that look something like us. You know, I don't know where they came from, but they look like us and they, they, they're crazy. The thing is, it has not hurt my family, to integrate all these new people. It's broadened the family. It has, um, it's, it's blessed us beyond measure, having these new personalities. People like my brother-in-law, Ben, my brother-in-law, Matt, my sister-in-law, Amy, my future brother-in-law, Cody, who uh, is marrying my sister in June, who I love. He's amazing. These people have not ruined what we had. They've changed it, and we let them change it. And they've been changed by it. And that is a picture of Christ and the church. God has his reasons. He's going to bring people to our church who look different from, I'll just make an individual, who look different from you, who have different politics than you, who have different uh, ideas about morality. They're they're working towards uh, understanding God and his ways, just like you are. Uh, people from different cultures, people who speak English as a second or third language, but God in his wisdom is bringing them here to us. And what God's heart loves is when we recognize that the church is a big family, a real family. We, we talk about, we want church to be like family. Well, I, I kind of say, church is a family, we need to act like it. God made us a family through the blood of Jesus. And the blood of Jesus that binds us together is stronger than the biological blood that binds you to your, to your relatives. And I have a wonderful family, but I am bound to you guys in the same way as I'm bound to them. Some of you have had really difficult families, and you feel closer to your church family than to them. I happen to be ridiculously blessed, and I have both, and I thank God for that. Uh, but but this, is, this is our family, our flesh and bone family. And it's incumbent upon each one of us to look around and say, this is my sister in Christ. This is my brother in Christ. This is my father and mother in Christ. This is my grandmother and grandfather in Christ. And I have, I have a church mother. I do. I have a clone of my biological mother who goes to this church. And we go out to coffee, and she makes us meals, and it's, it's a family relationship. I call her my church mom. I told my real mom about her. My mom was okay with it. Thank God. But when, when, when God is in his wisdom and by his reasoning bringing people to us, it's incumbent upon us to, to begin to think about church differently. That this, the church is a big family and our families are little churches. That's what this book we're reading in small groups says. Our family is a little church, right? Uh, if, if you have roommates, they can be like a family to you. If you are married, uh, they can be like a family to you. But it's like a little church, you and your kids. And my, my friend Foy, who, who mentored me, uh, and Jackie, he says, your, your family is your first congregation. So whether you're a pastor or not, 
Um, your family is your first congregation. Those are the people you got to be cool with, you know, first. But, your, but then your big church gathering is a big family. And I think we need to shift our thinking about church when we look around at different people who may be different from us, who, who we may have different customs and thoughts and, and all these different things. We need to shift and think, these are my family in Christ, so that when someone tries to attach to us, it's really quite easy. We're basically blessing the thing that God has already done. You know, when God brings people to saving faith in Jesus by the blood of Christ and brings them into our doors, that's something he's done. He's brought a Christian here. And what we need to do is we need to bless and baptize that by saying, you are family. You belong. You are a fellow journeyer. Because all of us are on a journey. And all of us, in order to thrive, need unconditional love and acceptance from a family. And that's what God's given to us. God's given us unconditional love and acceptance through the merits of Christ, not through our works, lest anyone should boast. And we need to reflect that love of God to all the people that God brings who might be very different from us and let them know you are unconditionally loved and accepted and we are on a journey together and we are not moving towards becoming Nate-likeness, which is my name. We're not moving towards Nate-likeness. We're moving towards Christ-likeness together. And you are going to change me and, I, and um, I'm going to hopefully change you. It's, it's a different vision, not a condescending, you know, I'm helping you hand down, pull you up, but all of us together moving towards Christ on a level playing field. I read this morning this quote from Bonhoeffer. I think this is quite good. He said in his book, Life Together, It may be that Christians, even though they have their corporate worship, their common prayer, and their fellowship and service, they may still be left to their loneliness. The final breakthrough to true fellowship does not occur because though they have fellowship with one another as believers and as devout people, they do not have fellowship as the undevout, as sinners. The pious fellowship permits no one to be a sinner. (laughs) So everybody must conceal his sin from himself and from the fellowship. We dare not be sinners. Many Christians are unthinkably horrified when a real sinner is suddenly rediscovered among the righteous. So we remain alone in our sin, living in lies and hypocrisy. If someone comes into our church, who God's brought here by his wisdom and for his reasons, and they feel that uh, there's no way to connect because everyone just is perfect, and everyone is holy, and everyone is good, and everyone has arrived then that person is not going to feel uh, safe. They're, they're going to feel like no one here can help me. The true fellowship of the church is when we recognize that, we, that in Christ we are saints, but in ourselves we are a community of sinners. We're, we're, we're a community of, of travelers who are, have not reached Christ-likeness but are moving towards it. So as we, as we humble ourselves, as we, as we view the church as a family, as we view Jesus as the head of the church towards whom we are all uh, moving into, as we look around us and make it a priority to let people know they are our family, our flesh and blood family, because the only qualification for that is being in Christ. As we give unconditional love and acceptance to others in the same way God's given it to us, the thing that we'll see is that our church actually does become the body of Jesus Christ, that we actually do begin moving towards real holiness and not hiding our sins and problems from one another and 
in, in blocking off the possibility of, of getting any help and the help that we need. And I don't know about you, but I need a lot of help. And I think the people, are, the people that you look around and see on a Sunday morning, they need a lot of help. But luckily there's one who's called the helper, the Holy Spirit. And, uh, and he is there to help us. <laughs> but we have to be a community that's humble enough uh, to recognize our need for Jesus and recognize that it's through him, not by our, our decision, that the church is built. And that all the people that come here are our brothers and sisters in Christ. How are we going to do that? It's a change of mind, a change of heart, a humbling of ourselves before God, a recognition that we're on a journey together and that we need the people that God brings. We need them to change us, and we, they need us to change them, and we are all moving towards being changed by Jesus into the likeness of God. Please join me in a prayer. Father, I, I pray that you would uh, save people in Saratoga Springs. Bring them into our living room, into our sacred family space, and change us uh, that we are, might be a church that carries the culture of heaven. Every tribe, tongue, and culture, um, every, every person, God, welcomed into the family through the merits of, of Jesus Christ, saved by grace. Let us become a church that just pleases you, Father, a church that, that, uh, that is a reflection of your kingdom. And let your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. For your people, God, I pray that you would work in our hearts to view our church as a family and to view people you bring by your wisdom as family. And let us all grow together into the head of him who called us, Jesus Christ, who is the head of the church. In Jesus' name.